Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Leading us in prayer, you can all open your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis. We are continuing through our study of the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 2, looking at verses 4 through 17 today. Uh, It would be very helpful for you if you did have a Bible uh, in your lap so that you could follow along. If you didn't bring one, that's okay. We do have paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, so uh, just feel free to reach forward and grab one of those, and I think the text is on page one. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take uh, that Bible home. That would be our gift to you, so feel free to take that Bible with you. Uh, thanks, uh, Bob, for your prayer for uh, my wife, Mary, and I um, want to extend uh, some thanks to the support and encouragement given to us here over the last couple of weeks since my wife's mother passed away. The week before last, um, this past Tuesday, was the funeral in Richmond, and uh, I was able to participate in that funeral and was able to highlight, make note of the very impressive spiritual legacy of Mary's mother. Um, Mary has three siblings, so that's four children total, and all four of them are devoted, committed servants of Jesus to this day. So uh, that's uh, not easy to do, to raise four children in that way. Of course, we give God all the glory for that, but he used his instruments Uh, Mary's mom and dad for that purpose and so I was uh, very very privileged thankful that I had an opportunity to to know Mary's mom for quite a few years before she passed away and um, you know I think that gets to something that we all kind of long for I think we all want to know our our ancestors to some degree right I mean not all of us even know our own parents for whatever reason but we certainly wish that we could know our parents Uh, we wish we could know our grandparents Some of us get the privilege of even knowing your great-grandparents, maybe even great-great-grandparents in some cases, but I think this is something we all kind of long for. We want to know our ancestors, right? We want to know who came before us because we know that um, what they're like tells us something about what we're like, that we inherit certain traits and characteristics from our ancestors. Personally, I was able to know grandparents on my mom and my dad's side, not my great-grandparents, but my grandparents. Um, Today, you're going to learn something about one of your ancestors. Now, you've never met him before, I'm sure of that, Uh, but you're going to learn something about him today, and that's going to teach you something about you. Uh, I do know his name. His name is Adam. And how interesting it is that he's an ancestor that all of us in this room share. We all share a common ancestor, even everybody in the human race. And what we're going to learn here this morning about Adam is going to tell us a lot about what it is to be a human being. What is it to be human? This is something that is challenged, attacked, and discussed, and disagreed upon in our culture. In many cases, redefined and deconstructed. This passage is so absolutely essential for our understanding of what it is to be a human being. So interesting that this passage, written so many centuries ago, still has such profound relevance to our culture today and the discussions that we're having. 
So we are continuing through this sermon series. As I mentioned, we're calling this the Gospel According to Genesis. And we just started chapter 1, verse 1, working our way through this book, one passage at a time. We've been through chapter 1. Last week we looked at the Sabbath in the first three verses of chapter 2. And so we're picking up in chapter 2, verse 4. Now when I read this to you here in just a moment, you're going to notice that what this passage tells us is just uh, another account of creation. And if you've been with us through this series, you might think, wait a minute, I thought we just heard about creation when we went through chapter 1. Why is it that chapter 2 is giving us another account of creation? And there are some people, critics of the Bible, who will look at this and say, yeah, see, this is the problem with the Bible. It's clearly not inspired by God because here you have two accounts of creation. It's like the Bible writers didn't even realize it. We got two people here. Somebody wrote chapter 1, somebody else wrote chapter 2, somebody pieced it together. They don't even know what they're doing. How can you believe in your Bibles? That's a very, very common criticism of these first couple chapters of the Bible. But I'm going to make the case here that, no, that's a very unfair criticism. What we're seeing here is not two entirely different um, creation accounts. We're seeing two perspectives on the same event. Chapter 1 gives us the account of creation from more of a heavenly perspective, we might say, and chapter 2 gives us an account of creation from a more earthly perspective and a more man-centered perspective, as you'll see. So, let's read this passage. I'm going to start in verse 4 and read through verse 17. Uh, let's stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word, if you are able. Chapter 2, verse 4 through 17. <clears throat> Genesis 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God, again, we call on you by your spirit to open our eyes, 
Open our hearts, Lord. Give us understanding now as we read your word and hear it preached. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. All right, so you noticed another creation account here in chapter 2. A very important verse for understanding how these two chapters relate is verse 4. So I want to direct your attention to verse 4 here for a moment. Let's look very carefully at this. It's very instructive. Uh, The very first part of verse 4 says this, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So you notice there that the word heavens is mentioned before earth. And so what we're seeing here is a link from chapter 1 to the first part of verse 4. But when you finish verse 4, go to the second half of it, and it says, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now you see that those two words are reversed. Earth comes first in the second part. Heavens comes first in the first part of the verse. And so I think what we're seeing here is that this verse 4 is linking chapters 1 and 2 together, suggesting that chapter 1 is focusing on the heavens primarily, and then chapter 2 is focusing on the earth. So it's actually a a very skilled uh, method of writing here that Moses is using in this verse to link these two chapters together. There's no mistake here. There's no sloppy editing going on. Moses, the author of Genesis, knew exactly what he was doing. And what we're seeing again is creation from God's perspective, from the heavenly perspective, chapter 1, chapter 2, creation more from an earthly perspective. Now here's another clue that supports what I'm saying here, and it has to do with the names that are used for God. So throughout chapter 1, whenever you see the word God, the Hebrew word is Elohim. So I have this on the screen here for you. Elohim. And if you look back at um, chapter 2, verse 4, you'll see, excuse me, go back to chapter 2, verse 2, and the seventh day God finished his work. You see how God is referred to there. God. Uh, The Hebrew word behind that is Elohim, it's a reference to God as the majestic, sovereign, almighty creator. That's what Elohim means. But go down to chapter 2, verse 4 then, and you'll see in the middle there, it says, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Do you see the difference? Chapter 2, verse 3 just says God. Chapter 2, verse 4 says Lord God, Lord in capital letters. The reason there's a difference there is because there's a different Hebrew word for God. The word here is Jehovah or Yahweh. And so the writer now is using a different word to show us that we're referring to or seeing, witnessing a different aspect of God's creator. And so God as creator. So Yahweh, the word used in chapter 2, refers more to a personal covenant God, an intimate knowable God. And so what we learn from this is that God is both of these things. He is the majestic, sovereign, transcendent creator, and he's also the God who is very personal and near and close, a covenant God who enters into relationship with people. You know, very often we emphasize one or the other. Sometimes people see God as this transcendent, sovereign, almighty God, but they think, how can I ever know him? He's way out in outer space some way. He's too busy for me. 
Um, and then some people see God as only a personal, crea- uh, personal um, kind of intimate friend, chum, or buddy, which kind of reduces the sovereignty and majestic nature of God. But the Bible teaches us that God is both. He's sovereign and majestic. He's close and personal. But in any case, we've got two perspectives on the same creation event here in chapters one and two. So three things that I want to show you here about what it is to be human. And the first thing is this. We see that God gives Adam life. God gives Adam life. So moving on from verse four, we get to verses five and six, and we see just the setting, the earthly setting here. It's the earth in a very primitive form. There's no bush, there's no plant, there's no rain. Um, it's been great to hear the rain on our roof here recently. We've really needed it. So, uh, But here is described a time in our past when there was no rain whatsoever. We do see in verse 6 there's a, a mist going up. So... Um, There is water provided to irrigate the the ground, but the important thing to notice here is what is said at the very end of verse 5. It says there was no man to work the ground. So there's something missing here. And so God creates man. God creates Adam. More specifically, God doesn't create him. Well, he does, but the way it's said here in verse 7 is that God formed the man. You see that? The Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah, formed the man. Now, that's important when the chapter 1, we say all that God created. The, the word that was used there is a word that refers to God's creating out of nothing. You might remember a few weeks ago that I explained that, that when God created the universe, he didn't have any pre-existing materials. He just created out of nothing in this miraculous, incomprehensible way. But that's not the word that's used here for how God creates man. He didn't create man out of nothing. He formed the man, verse 7, out of pre-existing material, in particular, the dust of the ground. And so we have a really interesting play on words that you completely miss in the English, but in the Hebrew, um, what you'll see is that the Hebrew word for man is Adam, and the Hebrew word for ground is Adama. They're almost entirely, almost completely identical. It's even hard to tell the difference between the Hebrew word for man and for ground or dirt. And so clearly there's a very close association made here between us and the dirt. You and I are made of dirt. We were born in the womb of the ground, the scriptures are telling us here. Now that's kind of a humbling thought, isn't it? We're made of dirt, but that's not all that it says. It goes on in verse 7 to say that God also breathed into his nostrils then the breath of life. That word for breath, it means spirit. There's a spirit from God that he breathes into this material that God has made. So we have another wonderful little balance here in the scriptures. On the one hand, as human beings, you and I are made in his image, made to reflect our creator. The the breath of God has been breathed into us. That sets us apart from the animals. We are not animals as human beings. We're 
better than the animals. Animals, we're superior to the animals. I mean, there's a lot of people in our day and age who would suggest that we're equal to the animals, that humans are just kind of an exalted animal. But just as soon as you begin to think that human beings are animals, it's not long before human beings start treating other human beings like animals. And that is something, of course, we want to avoid. So we are a step up from the animals, made in the image of God. God's life breathed into us, but at the same time, we're made from the ground. And so while we have this exalted and dignified nature, there's also something very humbling about this too. Before God, we are made from the dust, and to the dust we will return. So a very balanced view here of man. Now, I want to emphasize something here that I think it's important for us to kind of wrestle with and, and think about, particularly in our day and age, because, you know, God could have made us like the angels, right? Angels have no bodies. Angels are just spirits, and God had the freedom to make us that way, but he didn't. He made us different than the angels. He made us out of physical substance. A human being is not merely a soul or a spirit. A human being is a spirit in a body, an embodied soul. That's how God made us. That's how God intends us to function as human beings, souls and bodies together. Friends, as Christians, you need to understand that you should value your body, that your body is not secondary to your spirit or your soul. Your soul is not more important than your body. I think that surprises a lot of people to, to hear, but look, this is how God is making us, soul and body together. Your body is not disposable. Your body is not like a jacket that you just throw off when you don't need it or don't want it anymore. The body is not something that you look to escape one day. Your body is intrinsic to your humanity. And we see this over and over again in Scripture, the way the Bible talks about the connectedness between soul and body. Here's Psalm 63. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Flesh is a reference to the body. My body longs for God. Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sin, David says, a spiritual action of denying sin, my body wasted away. It had a, an effect on my, on my physical existence, my body. Romans 12 commands us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We are souls and bodies together. You know, a lot of people talk about the importance of body language, right? And very often we say body language is actually more important than what you actually say. I mean, isn't that interesting? That the way your body acts and moves communicates something to other people about what's going on in your spirit, even more so than your words do. And I totally agree with that. Sometimes people are saying one thing and their body is saying something else. And you know to believe the body, not the words. Because the body is like a window into the soul. That's the interconnectedness that we're seeing here in the way God has made us as human beings, spirit and body together. Now this is important because in our culture today, the body is very frequently 
mitigated, diminished, denied, ignored. It, it used to be, as a result of Darwinism in particular, that the view that people held is that we are only a body and not a soul. And that's a very common kind of Darwinistic view. The soul, spirit, it's not, doesn't even exist. We're just bodies. But now, now in our culture today, what we're seeing is people are exalting our feelings and mind and will above the body so that what a person feels and what a person desires becomes more important than the body. And we see this very frequently, for example, in homosexual relationships where the structure of two people physically take a secondary role to the way they feel about each other. So that two men love each other, two women love each other, but what their bodies are saying seem to be irrelevant. It's only what their feelings are dictating. And that takes precedent. Certainly in the transgender um, community, you have this as well, where biological sex, what the body is saying, is denied, even desecrated, in order to uphold the way the person feels. I mean, that's the way people think today. The way I feel, the what I think, what my mind desires, that's what's most important. And the body gets put aside. Nancy Piercy wrote a book called Love Thy Body. And it's just all about this topic. And she says this, if the meaning of our sexuality is not something we derive from the body, then it becomes something we impose on the body. Sexual identity is reduced to a postmodern concept completely disconnected from the body. When Christians speak out against these kinds of alternative lifestyles, it's not because we hate people who identify this way. That's not the reason. It's because we love them, because we want them to function as fully designed human beings, spirit and body together. We see this as, as dehumanizing. To reject what your body says is dehumanizing because it's intrinsic to how God made us. There's no greater affirmation of the value of the body than the incarnation of our Savior, right? The second person of the Trinity comes and to come into this earth, he takes on a human body. God himself, a holy, majestic, perfect God, takes human flesh and lives among us. And so friends, we should have a high regard for our bodies. You, you should value your body. You should seek to be content with the body that God has given you. And that can be a challenge, right? I think there's probably not a person in this room who's content with his or her body. <laughs> we look in the mirror and we don't like what we see. We don't like our bodies. A lot of us are just hoping to get away from our bodies. It's not going to happen. God gave you a body. He gave you the specific body that you have, and there's no mistake in that. Now, of course, we seek to improve our bodies. We can exercise. We can eat a good diet. That's all totally legitimate, but God has given you a body, and that's his intent, and that's a good thing. We should also be aware that there, again, is a connection between our body and our soul. If you're feeling spiritually depressed, spiritually listless, you might ask, how well are you caring for your body? Because there's a big connection between the two. If you're not sleeping well, not eating well, not exercising well, and find yourself depressed, there's a connection there. There might not be some magic secret formula to alleviating that. Eat well, go to bed early, and get exercise, and you'll feel better. 
in your soul, you'll feel better. And also be aware, Christian, that your body is going with you into eternity. (laughs) You're not discarding it. When Jesus comes again, we're all going to be resurrected in physical bodies, as Paul tells us here. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. When that day comes, I promise you, you will be perfectly satisfied with the resurrected body that you will receive from God. So this is the first thing. God gives life. He breathes life into a body made of the dust of the ground, made of physical substance. Second thing, what is it to be human? Well, God also puts Adam in a place, in a very specific place. And in fact, it's a garden. God puts Adam in a garden. Verse 8, it says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So notice here also it's a garden in Eden. It seems to suggest that Eden is a territory larger than the garden. Uh, The garden is in Eden, kind of like Muncie is in Delaware County. Eden is a bigger place, uh, but nonetheless, there's the garden. It's in Eden, and Eden is the word from which we get our word paradise. So God has put Adam in paradise. So this is, you know, a a, a place where everything is just right. And part of what it is to be human, again, is not to be a spirit disembodied floating in the clouds. It's to be a person in a place, a specific place on the earth, a place that God calls paradise. So there's three things here that I want you to see about this place. First is this. It is a place of work. (laughs) That's surprising, isn't it? You're probably thinking, I thought you said it was paradise. (laughs) Wait a minute, it's a place where he would work? Well, look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. It's so interesting that what God tells Adam here is not what we would consider to be a spiritual activity. You know, we might think that God would say, okay, Adam, sit down and start reading your Bible. You know, do something spiritual. No, what God says is, no, get to work, Adam. And the conclusion I think we can draw from this is that earthly work is spiritual. That we shouldn't separate the two. When people become Christians, friends, we don't all become workers of the church, right? We don't all become employees of the church. Just a very few small percentage of people do. The rest of us, when you become a Christian, you keep working in your various vocations, Not everyone is a church worker, but all work is a sacred calling in the Christian worldview. Notice this is before the fall, friends. The fall comes in chapter 3. That's when sin enters the world. Before there's any sin, God says you need to work because work is a good thing. Even in paradise, God wants there to be work. So much of us, so many of us, I think think of a paradise as a, a situation where we're not doing anything. We're just sitting on the couch watching TV or looking at our phone. We're just totally inactive. And you hear it happen very often when people retire and then they don't have anything to do. What happens? They get very antsy. They want to get to work. They want to have something to do because that's what it is to be human. It's to be busy. Whatever you do, whether you're an insurance agent or a mechanic 
teacher, CEO, stay-at-home mom, truck driver, whatever it is that you do, do it all for the glory of God because your work is a sacred calling. Gene Veith says this, Christians are not to retreat from the realm of the ordinary in the everyday. They are not supposed to be having mystical experiences all the time, to be otherworldly, to the neglect of the world in which God has placed them. God has work for us to do, and that's a godly and spiritual thing. So, the garden is a place of work. But secondly, the garden is also a place of beauty. It's a beautiful place. Now, through verses 10 through 14, I won't get into too much detail here, but there's a description of all these various rivers. There's one river that flows out of Eden and divides up into four rivers. What this tells us is that Eden is a real place on this earth, We know about the Euphrates River and the Tigris. We don't know about all these rivers, but Eden is not some mythical land like Atlantis. It's a real place that existed on this earth. But we see there's rivers here at the end of verse 11. There's gold. Verse 12, there's these precious jewels. This is a beautiful place. And if you back up to verse 9, we see this even more specifically. Verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is, look, pleasant to the sight. God makes trees that are beautiful for Adam to behold. God values beauty. He wants things to look good. You know, a tree doesn't have to be beautiful to perform its function, right? It doesn't have to be beautiful. There's really no utility to beauty God just loves beauty, wants to make things beautiful, wants you to live in a beautiful world. And man, I don't know if there's any place on earth I'd rather be than Indiana in the middle of October when you talk about beautiful trees, (laughs) particularly when it's nice and sunny and the sun comes through and just spotlights the yellow and orange and red colors of the trees. It's It's just gorgeous. It's just God's way of saying, I just want to give you gifts. I want you to behold my beauty and my glory through the trees. And so God values beauty, but he also values food. If you go on through the rest of verse 9, trees, pleasant to the sight, and also good for food. God wants us to enjoy good food. God could have made all food the same, right? He could have made it like manna, like we all eat the same thing all the time. But instead, God makes food with various tastes and colors and textures so that it tastes good. Again, the taste of food has nothing to do with whether it's nutritional, right? Food could be nutritional and not taste good, and we still have to eat it. But God says, no, I want it to be good for food. I want you to enjoy the food that you eat. I was at Con Cannon's this past week, and I got a cup of coffee, and the particular coffee was called Sinful Delight, And then the description below it was that it was chocolate, caramel, and hazelnut together. You know, the suggestion is that something that good would have to be sinful to enjoy. And the implication is if you delight in something, it's got to be a sin. (laughs) That's, That's not Christianity. There's plenty of things that we can enjoy and delight in to his glory, and that's what we're seeing here in the garden. 
God puts Adam in this place, beautiful trees, good food to enjoy. God wants us to enjoy our place in this physical world. Jonathan Edwards says this, all the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is but a reflection of the diffused beams of that being who has an infinite fullness of brightness and glory. God is the foundation and fountain of all being and all beauty. All beauty has its origin in our God. That's why I've always said Christians ought to be the best artists, writers, painters, sculptors, and musicians because we're the ones who worship the God of beauty. And God has begun his relationship with Adam in a place of beauty. One other thing about this place, it's also a place of worship. This is a place of worship. Let's not miss what is here, but very easy to overlook. Eve has not been created yet, right? So it's just Adam in the garden, but Adam's not alone. Who else is there? God is. God is there. If you look to chapter 3, verse 8, it talks about God walking in the garden. So we have here in this garden a situation where God and human beings are meeting together in a specific place and relating to one another. In other words, the garden is like a sanctuary. It's like a temple. It's like a tabernacle where God and people are meeting in, I would say, covenant relationship in the garden. Look at uh, Hosea 6 and 7. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant Prophet refers to the relationship between God and Adam in the garden as a covenant. God is covenanted with Adam here. Adam is worshiping God in the garden. This is God's intent that he would create people, human beings, who would relate to him perfectly, who would know him fully, who would not be afraid or ashamed of him, who would not flee from him, but who would love him and submit to him and enjoy him and would, in response to the creation mandate, would be fruitful and would multiply so that God's image bearers would continue to increase in the garden and then spread out from the garden over the whole earth so that God's glory would be proclaimed as people go forth over the whole globe. That was God's intent. That's the way this was supposed to work. But it all went wrong. It all went wrong. In chapter 3, we're going to see some details about how that happened. But we get the beginning of that as we move to our third point. How did it all go wrong? Well, we also see that God gives Adam a command. So there are two trees, two significant trees named in this passage in verse 9. One's called the tree of life. Um, the tree of life, if you want to flip to chapter 3, verse 22, you'll see that um, the tree of life is forbidden because if you eat from it, you will live forever. So apparently the tree of life gives this kind of power for eternal life. But it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is most significant right here. It's also mentioned in verse 9. And here's God's command to Adam. Let's, let's read it, verses 15 and 16. <clears throat> the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God 
commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now just think about that for just a second. I mean, what a wonderful commendation. Here's what God is saying. So often we think of God as telling us all the things we can't do. God tells Adam something he can do. You can eat of any tree in the garden. These beautiful trees with all this good food, they're all openly available to you at any time. Adam, enjoy yourself in this garden. There's one stipulation. There's just one tree that I don't want you eating from. Verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Here's the condition of the covenant relationship. There's, there's a responsibility that Adam has to God. Isn't that interesting that even in paradise, God has authority over man. Even in paradise, man must submit to God's authority. I mean, so often we think of paradise as, well, that's where I get to do whatever I want, and I get to throw off all restraints and indulge myself completely. That sounds like paradise to me. But what God says, no, here is paradise, and what makes paradise paradise is that you're under my authority. To be human is not to just do whatever you want. It's to do in your life what God wants. It's submission to his authority. And that's what we're seeing here. This is part of God's command, but here's the bad news. Adam is not going to obey this command. I mean, after all that God has done for him and after all that God has given to him, Adam isn't going to obey. And again, that's in chapter 3, and we're going to see what happens there in a couple of weeks. But you know the story. Adam disobeys. Why? Why would he do that? He can eat any tree of the garden. He's got a perfect relationship with God. Here's why he, he's going to do this. Because we find out that Adam really doesn't want what God wants. Adam wants what Adam wants. That Adam doesn't really want to submit to morality and the knowledge of good and evil as God has defined it. He wants to make it up on his own. He wants to invent his own morality. He wants to be the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. Adam doesn't want to submit to God's authority. He wants to reject God's authority. In fact, he'd kind of like to be God himself. And he'd like to see God dethroned and himself take over as the transcendent sovereign being over all the earth. The result of this is a severe penalty. Death, physical Physical death, certainly. Adam will die. He doesn't die on the spot here, but he will die eventually. The penalty of death is inflicted, but there's also a spiritual death here. And this is the, the point where Adam begins to get distance from God. He gets separated from God. That's spiritual death. All of a sudden, God isn't a friend. God's an enemy. All of a sudden, God is not one he can draw close to. God is one he's got to flee from. All of a sudden, God is not one he loves. God is one he hates. That's the result of what Adam has done. Now, how does this affect you? And how does this affect me? Adam's our ancestor. We've inherited something from him. We've inherited characteristics and traits from him. And the bad news is these things that we're seeing is what we've inherited from him. Fact is that we're the same way. We'd rather run our own life. We don't want God running our life. We don't like God telling us what's right and what's wrong. We want to decide that for ourselves. 
We don't want to submit to what God has declared in his word to be true for us. We want to make that up on our own. We don't want someone else calling the shots. We want to call the shots. And that is what all humanity has inherited. It's in our DNA since the very beginning. Every single human being as a descendant of Adam, the ancestor, has in his or her heart that same basic inclination to reject God. This is what C.S. Lewis <coughs> says this. All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, it's the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That's what we've inherited from Adam. That's what you've inherited in me as well. But here's the good news, friends. Here's the gospel. Another human being came along. Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman, the one who tabernacled among us, the word made flesh, the God-man came to this earth, walked among us. You know what the Bible also says about Jesus? It says that he is the second Adam. He's another Adam. He's the one who came to succeed where Adam failed. He's the one who came to do what Adam didn't do. He's the one who was righteous when Adam was sinful. Everything Adam did wrong, Jesus did right. And Romans 5 tells it this way, for as by the one man's disobedience, referring to Adam, the many were made sinners, that's all of us, so by the one man's obedience, referring to Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And that can be true of you if you repent, turn from your sins, and trust Jesus as your Savior. He will regard you as righteous in his sight, not because you obey commands and not because you're a morally good person and not because you have this basic sense of benevolence toward other people, but because Jesus has done for you what you can't do for yourself. This is the gospel. Every place where you have failed in your life, in your relationship to your spouse and your children and your parents, everything you've done from day one up to this current point in history, every way that you have fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus has succeeded in your place. Where you have done it wrong, he did it right. And he was so committed to obedience that he obeyed the call of the Father to go to the cross and lay down his life voluntarily for you to cover and atone for your sins. Will you take this Jesus? Will you believe in his name? By physical birth, friends, you inherit your ancestor Adam's nature. That leads to death. But by personal faith, you can inherit the righteousness that Jesus has for you and inherit eternal life. And that, friends, is the most important step for you to be the human being that God has made you to be. Father, we do thank you. We do praise you. We do give you glory for speaking to us in your word, for telling us the truth, and for giving us hope in the gospel. God, we give you praise in Jesus' name, amen.